Hey church, I'm glad that you're here. We're going to look at the Word of God together this morning. We're going to be in Mark chapter 15. So if you have a Bible and you want to open it up to Mark 15, you can. Or if you're just joining us and you want to follow along with the words on the screen, we'll be sure to have those verses from Scripture on the screen as we go. Hey, let's try something fun to to begin this morning. This is the interactive portion of the sermon. I'm going to say lines from a song, one line from a song. And the first person that can comment in our comment thread with the next line in the song, we're going to send something special to. So I'll say a line, and whoever can comment first with the next line will send something special to. Okay, are you ready? All right, here it goes. All right, stop. Collaborate and listen. Okay, I'm going to give you a second there. I'm going to give you a second. Who's got, who's got that next line? Okay, here, here's the next one. Don't go chasing waterfalls. Okay, here comes, here comes our next one. We're watching that thread right now. Just a small town girl living in a lonely world. All right, we're watching. I'm going to come back and give the answers for those who don't know them. Here's the next one. See if you know this one. Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder. What comes next? Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder. All right. And now here's, here's the last one. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. You want the answers? Y'all want the answers? I hope you got them on our Facebook thread. But here it is, the first one. All right, stop, collaborate, and listen. Ice is back with the brand new invention. There you go. That's the first one. I got a little too rappy there. I'm sorry about that. Forgive me. Uh, Don't go chasing waterfalls. Please stick to the rivers and the lakes that you're used to. Mm -hmm. Just a small town girl. Living in a lonely world, she took the midnight train going anywhere. Right, all right, sorry, I gotta stop that. Can't let that happen again. Oh Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made. An amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You know, song lyrics get imprinted on our minds, don't they? You know, you, you hear a song so, so many times that just one line from the song can take you back, right, to memories and thoughts and emotions that you feel with that whole song. And one line can, can lead you singing that song, the whole song, all day long. Uh, how many of you, in your living rooms right now, let's see a show of hands, how many of you lived through the mixtape generation? You know what a, you know a mixtape is? Back when we had cassette tapes and then even mixed CDs, Right? You would make this, this mixtape of songs for your girlfriend or, or your boyfriend that described how you felt about her or him. You know? And then when your, your girlfriend dumped you, these were love songs, then when your girlfriend dumped you, you put together another mixtape of just heart-sick love songs trying to win her back. And then when that didn't work, you made an, another mixtape of, of rage and anger songs to help you get over your ex-girlfriend or boyfriend. For the record, Breeshan had a lot of mixtapes, a lot of mixtapes. So um, I had a, a girlfriend when I was in fourth grade, my first, my first girlfriend, first girlfriend. She 
was great. At the time, I had a chili bowl haircut, and so did she, actually. But we had a song, she and I, we had our own love song. It was Savage Gardens, Truly, Madly, Deeply. And we had a mixtape, too. Now, I praise God that that relationship did not work out. It turns out our our love was not true or deep, only mad. But here's the thing about a mixtape, right? You pick the songs that describe how you feel about somebody. And in those songs, so an individual line in that song may be true and may, may remind you of certain special moments with that person. The individual lines are true, but what you're really after is a song that on the whole describes how you feel about that person. It, I obviously know way, way more about mixtapes than I should. But then what happens is as you listen to that mixtape over and over, just one line from one of those songs evokes all kinds of memories and thoughts for you about that person. Just one line will do that. Now, here's the deal. There, there's no good way to transition from this kind of silly intro about the songs of our past and mixtapes to something that's really serious this morning. So just, so, you know, insert awkward Awkward preacher transition here. There's no good way to do it. But here's the deal. I think what we've just talked about with songs and how one line from a song can make us think of a whole song and how a song can be true of a person, that those, that those things will help us interpret something that is really challenging in the last moments of Jesus's life on the cross. And, you know, sometimes a little bit of humor, a little bit of laughing, lowers the barriers in our walls, in our hearts, sorry, those walls come down and something that's, that's powerful and important is able to make its way in. And so I hope that maybe you're lowering down your defenses at this moment as we look at something serious. We're in a series right now in the last week of Jesus's life. And over the last few Sundays, we have been going through each day in that last week leading up to his crucifixion And then last week, we started with a focus on the cross. We looked at Jesus as he is surrounded by two criminals, as others hurl insults at him, and he forgives those who do that. We talked about the way that at the cross, Jesus is forgiving. And so I encourage you, if you didn't see that, to go back and watch last week's sermon. Today, we're going to look at Jesus on the cross as he breathes his last. And we're in Mark 15. We're starting at verse 33. So let's read together. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lamna sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine and vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. And Jesus cries out from the cross in words that even non-Christians know. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now here's what's really important to recognize about those few words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
those words are actually song lyrics. They're actually the first words from a song, and we find that song in the book of Psalms in the Old Testament, Psalm 22. In the book of Psalms, 150 of those Psalms, what those are is Israel's songbook, their, their prayer book. It's a, it's a book filled with songs. In fact, if you look at Psalm 22 in your Bible, probably what you'll read at the beginning in a small print is that this song is to be sung to the tune of the doe of the morning. Now, I have no idea what the doe of the morning sounded like, but here's what I want you to notice. At this most agonizing moment in Jesus's life, what comes to mind for him is a song, a song. Many of you have read C.S. Lewis books before. Y'all know if you're at Highland that I'm a big fan of C.S. Lewis. Maybe you've read The Chronicles of Narnia or Mere Christianity or Screwtape Letters. One of his most powerful books is a book that he wrote after losing his beloved wife. It's called A Grief Observed. And in one scene in that book, Jesus, or sorry, C.S. Lewis talks about going to God when his need is most desperate and finding God's door slammed on his face. And he says this, you hear the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside of that door. How can, how can this man of faith, you know, maybe the greatest Christian author of the 20th century, how can he, how can he say that about God? Finding the door locked from the inside and trying to go to God? Or how about this? How can Jesus, the Son of God, say he felt forsaken by his Father? Those sound faithless. But think about this with me for a second. Doesn't it, doesn't it mean something that C.S. Lewis is still knocking on that door, God's door, even though it's locked? You know, doesn't it mean something that Jesus is still crying out to the God and Father who he feels like has abandoned him? And maybe this isn't faithlessness at all. You know, maybe this is the clearest picture we find in Scripture of what real faith actually is. Calling out to God, even when he feels absent and distant. And some of you are feeling that right now. I know we're in the midst of this isolation and quarantine relating to this pandemic. Some of you have lost jobs and have serious concerns about your well-being and the well-being of those you love, and we'll come back to it. Here we see something about faith. You know, maybe faith is not the, the refusal to acknowledge when you are disappointed in God, but maybe faith is even when you are disappointed, still knocking on the door, Right? So was Jesus forsaken by God? The answer to that question is, is, is really yes. And I want to explain what I mean by that in a few moments. But the clue here to that yes is in the darkness that we see. We read this, at noon darkness came over the whole land. That's in Mark 15, verse 33. At noon darkness came over the whole land. Now noon is usually not a time of darkness, right? Usually the sun is at its peak at noon, it, and usually it's light outside at noon, except in Memphis where it's always raining and the sun is by, behind clouds nearly every day. Can I get an amen? I'm so tired of the rain, right? Okay, but usually noon is a time of light. And what we know about darkness in Scripture is that often darkness, when the sky goes dark, what that is associated with is judgment. So in Exodus 10, 
when Pharaoh and the Egyptians are refusing to let the Israelites go, God's people go, one of the things God does, among 10 other things, one of the things God does is send darkness on the land for three days. So darkness is this sign of, of curse and judgment. And it's not, only, it's not only the darkness that's a curse, it's the cross itself. So what Paul knew, the Apostle Paul, what he knew about a cross from reading Deuteronomy in his Old Testament and from witnessing the crucifixion of many hundreds, surely in Rome, that he had seen at least from a distance, what he knew about a cross was that to be hung on a cross was to be cursed, not only from those around you, but cursed by God himself. And he knew that from Deuteronomy 21. And so what we see in Paul is somebody who really struggles to make sense of this truth. You know, how is it that the same risen Lord, the King of the cosmos, who knocks Paul from his donkey on that road to Damascus and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? How can this risen and glorified one be the same one who died on a Roman cross cursed by God. And that when we say curse, what we mean is separated from God, distant from God, it, it, to live in blessing and joy and fulfillment and happiness and glory. Those reflect the presence of God and those are the opposite of curse. And to be hung on a cross is to be cursed. And what we see in Paul is that he's really wrestling with that over and over again until he realizes that's the whole point. That's the whole point of the cross. He says in Galatians 3.13 that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Let me, let me try to help you explain what's happening on the cross in maybe a way you haven't considered before, but a way that I hope will be helpful as you reflect on the death of Jesus for your sake. <clears throat> The judgment that Jesus experiences by Rome and the Jewish authorities, it parallels our situation in the world under the judgment and rule and reign and terror of sin. Now, when you and I think about sin, and I've talked about this at Highland before, so those Highlanders have heard me say this, we tend to think of sin with a lowercase s. You know, my sin are the bad things that I do. But that's really a recent development in the history of Christian faith to think about sin in that way. For 1,800 years at least, sin had a capital S. And what I mean by that is sin wasn't just the bad things I do. Sin was the power under which I was living as a human, as a person in bondage to these powers of sin that lead me to do the things that I don't wanna do and that hurt so many around us. And what Paul tells us in Romans 6 is that that power of sin is leading you and I to one thing, death, death. But he says this in Romans 6. He says, thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, though you used to be under that power of sin, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. You know, in other words, at the cross, Jesus takes our place under the rule and the reign and terror of sin. 
we've heard that language before that Jesus takes my place at the cross. And what we often mean by that is, is he is sacrificed in my place to please a holy and glorious God who cannot be close with sin. Yes, right. But the other way to look at it, and this is a really profound truth that you need to consider, is that at the cross, Jesus takes my place under the reign of sin, under the terror of sin, the dominion and death of sin. And that is not a place where God hangs out, under the rule of sin. And in that, in taking my place there, Jesus is cursed and forsaken, and the darkness looms over the whole scene. One of the great American novels was written by John Steinbeck called The Grapes of Wrath. It's actually one of, I'd say my favorite books. I don't know if favorite's the right word for a book that's so difficult and daunting, but it's um, one that I find really important to me and one that maybe you're reading in this difficult time. Grapes of Wrath is set during the Dust Bowl, which happened in the Great Depression. So great heaps and tons of topsoil across the Midwest were blown into the sky due to agricultural practices. At the same time, as farms collapsed, the banking industry collapsed, people lost their homes and lives, lost everything. And in this scene, Seinbeck describes that. And I want you to pay attention to the darkness in the scene. He says this, The dawn came, but no day. In the gray sky, a red sun appeared, a dim red circle that gave a little light, like like dusk. And as the day advanced, the dusk slipped back toward darkness, and the wind cried, and it whimpered over the fallen corn. And the people came out of their houses and smelled the hot, stinging air, and they covered their noses from it. Men stood by their fences and looked at the ruined corn, drying fast now, only a little green left showing through the film of dust. The men were silent, and they did not move often. And the women came out of the houses to stand beside their man and to feel whether this time the men would break. And the women studied the men's faces secretly, for the corn could go as long as something else remained. What is it they needed to remain? Well, it's hope. You know, if the corn is lost, if the home is lost, if darkness covers the land, what they longed to see and the one they loved still was, was hope. And I'll tell you, I know that some of you, and myself included, are longing for hope right now. There is this real sense in which our world feels darkness, feels like darkness. I'm not just talking about the sin and the evil out there. I'm, t- I'm talking about a, a pandemic that has that has invaded and taken the lives of thousands, that has changed the very nature and course of our lives day in and day out, that has touched and affected people that we love. And it feels like to some of us, especially those who maybe lost a job or lost a loved one, that we're we're beating on the throne room of God. And what we're hearing back is Him bolting it shut from the inside. And what do Christians do when we feel that way? What do Christians do when we're afraid? When we are sad, when we are hopeless, what do we do? Well, what Christians have done for 2,000 years in moments like this is one thing, and that is look at the cross of Jesus Christ. And on first glance, when we look at the cross of Jesus, what we, what we seem to, to find is hopelessness, more hopelessness. My God, my God. 
Why have you forsaken me? But remember, these are lyrics to a song. And although that first line is true of Jesus, he was forsaken at the cross. Jesus knew that whole song was also true of him. And so have you ever read Psalm 22 alongside the cross? Look at this. Multiple lines from Psalm 22 are quoted nearly exactly in the Gospels and during the crucifixion. So this is verse 7 and 8 of Psalm 22. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. So in Matthew 27 then, starting in verse 39, we read this. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. You see the parallel there. And then in verse 16 of Psalm 22, we read this. They pierced my hands and my feet. In verse 18, we read this. They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. I know you see the parallels and Psalm 22 is actually full of parallels to the person of Jesus and specifically to his crucifixion. The whole song is about him. And when Jesus cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is not only speaking to the truth of how he feels, but he is speaking to the fact that this song, the whole of this song is true of him and his father. And so when we look at the whole song, we see this isn't hopeless at all, this cry. Because look at the rest of the psalm. Look at how it ends, starting in verse 22. I will declare your name, God, to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. For he, God, has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face, but he has listened to his cry for help. And future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. This quote is, is full. This song is full of hope. There's nothing hopeless about this at all. Jesus had hope on the cross. You know, Jesus was singing from the cross about how in him and through this very cross, God was going to do something that would show the whole world who he was, until the whole world, like the centurion who declares who Jesus Christ is, the whole world will ultimately know that he has done it. Well, what's he done? Well, to answer that, you got to pay attention to the curtain in verse 38. The curtain in the temple that as Jesus dies is torn into. We read this, the, the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom in verse 15, 38. Some good friends of ours recently recommended this children's book to us. It's called The Garden, the Curtain, and the Cross. It starts in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve when we read there was nothing bad ever and no one was sad ever. And best of all, God was there. But then, of course, there's sin. Sin enters the world, the same sin that Jesus is cursed by the sin that causes Adam and Eve to be sent from the garden. And God appears to have distanced himself from his people until later we read in this book when the temple is built and God comes to dwell there, but this curtain, this giant curtain is hung, separating the people from God. And here we have this darkest of pages. I've noticed every time we get to this page on which you see the cross, my kids begin to fidget and get excited. 
And they're not excited about the darkness on this page, the cross and the words like sin and bad things that we do that Jesus is taking upon himself at the cross. But they know that what comes next is this picture here of this glorious light breaking through and the temple curtain being torn and the two pieces falling to the ground. And whereas before that curtain had been a keep out sign, keeping people away from God's presence, it says the curtain tore, God had ripped up the keep out sign. God's wonderful place is open again because Jesus died, we can go in. And I know you might think to yourself, Eric, that's a, that's a really cute children's story. I tell you, it's not a children's story at all. It's the most wonderful story that's ever been told. Because Jesus became a curse for us under the rule and reign and terror of sin until he was dead. The curtain has been torn. And the God who is distant is now, is now close to you and to me. You know, Paul once stood before a group of unbelievers and he said to them that his hope was that they would know that God had done everything in this world, that he had created this world, that he had sent a savior to this world for one purpose so that they might reach out and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us, Paul said. He said that in him we live and we move and we have our being. You know, our world feels dark right now. But the message of the cross is that God is no longer far from any one of us. And that if you reach out and seek him, you will discover he is not far. And that your whole life has been lived in him. That in him you have lived and moved and have your very being. And his desire in doing all of this, even Jesus on the cross, was that you might reach out to the God who is not far from you. You are not alone right now. I'll tell you, I'll end with maybe being a little more vulnerable than I usually am. When we learned about this pandemic reaching Memphis and began to consider what that meant for our church, I'll tell you, I was anxious about it. And we were doing different things every day to prepare to to launch these online services, to prepare to stay in touch with the church body, even while we were separated physically. We were working nonstop every day, often late into the night. And I'll tell you, so many nights I went to bed with just kind of this raging storm inside, so much so that Lindsay told me I was grinding my teeth every night. And one morning, a couple weeks ago, just before our first online service, I was praying and I realized that that storm that had been brewing all day the day before and really for about a week was still raging. It was quiet. The lights in the house were off. I was sitting with just a cup of coffee before the boys wake up. And I recognized what was going on in my heart. I began to pray to God, God, you have calmed other storms. Would you calm this one? And he did. Like I felt this grace, the words of Jesus to that first storm, peace, be still, being spoken into my heart. And I'll tell you right now, I know that a lot of your lives feel like they're out of control and you don't know what's coming next and you're scared. But God is not far from you either because the veil, the curtain has been torn. 
and God is among his people. And my prayer right now for you is that you would reach out and take hold of him. If you don't know God, if you don't know his son, Jesus Christ, I want you to know that what happens on this cross happens for you. And if you don't know him and you want to comment in the comment section or send our Highland page a message, we'll follow up with you and let you know about Jesus. We would love to baptize you into his name, into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And if you are one of ours and you're going to take communion with your family or by yourself with the Bible right now, I encourage you to go and dwell on the fact that the veil has been torn on the cross and that God is with us. I'll see you next week.